Welcome to Beauty and the Mess, redefining what it means to have it all and how to find fulfillment in life. And now your host, transformational life coach and creator of the active word line, Beauty and the Mess, Robin Emmerich. Welcome to Beauty and the Mess. We are here with Dr. Russell Kennedy, otherwise known as the Anxiety Doctor. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I was trying to think back to when we met, and I, I think it was like seven, eight years ago. Is that right? I think it was at the uh, Hay House Conference, wasn't it? It yeah. was. It's in San Diego in 2012. Yes, yes. So quite a while. Yeah. 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 So I know um, at that time, I know you were doing stand-up comedy. Are you still doing yeah, comedy still do as well? Yeah. yeah, I've got a Christmas gig to do. I don't do it as much. But uh, I got a Christmas gig to do. Um, maybe I'm, I might do a few, but but right now, so I've been writing some new material and, and trying to get that that going uh, for sure. But I'm also writing a book right now, so it's it's one of these things when you're writing a book, like a, any time outside of writing the book, it's like I should be writing the damn book. Like I, should be writing it. <laughs> I know. The more I, I do it, the more I burn out. It's like okay, I've read this paragraph 15 times. It's not going to change. <laughs> It's not going to change on its own. You've got to have to do something. So you got to go do other things is basically what I'm saying. So yeah, is a great, a great way of, you know, you know, accessing a different part of my brain than the, than the thinking part for sure. I love that. So take me through your journey from really like the last several years on how you became known as the anxiety MD and, and what you're writing your new book on as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I've dealt with anxiety basically my whole life. You know, my father was schizophrenic. So growing up with him, I never really knew what I was going to get. You know, and my friends, a couple of my friends have uh, alcoholic parents and they, you know, it's a very similar story. You never know what you're going to get when you walk in the door. Um, so you learn how to be very hypervigilant and try to anticipate everything. But you burn yourself, your brain burned yourself out. So what I did, what I've done over the last kind of 25 years or so is, is study neuro. I got a degree in neuroscience and developmental psychology and medicine, as you know. And uh, I really focused on what is this thing called anxiety? What is this, what is going on in my mind, in my body? And then I did some ayahuasca and LSD, not to get high, but just to try and see if I could see another perspective on my anxiety. And I really did. Found it, it was more in my body than in my mind. And then I've been focusing on, okay, how do I heal that from a body-based perspective and a mind-based perspective? So I think in modern psychiatry and modern psychology, they deal mostly with talk therapy, mostly with, with mind things. But what if the problem is rooted in our body? What if we carry this anxiety in the cells of our body? You know, we know the heart has 40,000 sensory neurites. It has kind of a brain of its own. We know the gut has a brain of its own as well. So why not address those parts of anxiety as well because i know when i get anxious my whole body gets inflamed so i'm trying to to combine my you know highly academic medical doctor part with my highly kind of ethereal flaky living in a a temple in india for a while uh part of me so there's two and they fight and then the and then the, the humorous part of my brain fights gets in there and starts teasing both of them and it becomes a bit of a hell in there but it's kind of fun. But what I did was I tried in the last sort of seven years to create a program for people who struggle with anxiety to look at it in a very different way. 
And when you look at it, when you actually address the source of what is really the problem, people get better a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a ramble, but that's basically what I've been doing. I, I love that. So tell me a little bit about how you started with your own journey and, and what was that like for you? Well, I think I've probably seen 15 psychiatrists, maybe 4,000 psychologists. I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I saw a lot of practitioners and I wasn't really getting a lot better. You know, I was talking about my father and the wounding and blah, 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 all that stuff. And I wasn't really getting a lot better. And I, I you know, and I, I, was really at the end of my rope about seven or eight years ago, I guess around the same time I went to San Diego and just like, you know, what am I going to do here? Cause it was like, I was at the point where I thought, well, if, if this is what life is, it's not really worth living. Right. right. So I, um, I did some LSD and uh, basically after I got back from India and what the LSD showed me was this, this anxiety was in my body. So I started really focusing on the alarm that was in my body and for the first time in my life, started to get some relief from what I called anxiety. So I divide anxiety up into two things. There's the anxiety of the mind, which, are, which is painless, which is the thoughts that we have in our mind, which are, which are basically just words. Mm -hmm. And they're painless until we believe them. And then when we believe them, the body reacts to that belief exactly the same as it would if the, if the situation was actually happening. So I thought, well, let's cut out the middleman. Let's deal specifically with the body. So, you know, breathing techniques, just focusing on the alarm itself, localizing it in your body. Because a lot of my patients, when I would see them, I'd say, well, where do you feel the anxiety in your body? And they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. It's like, no, it's, it's in my head. Right. It's like, no, let's just sit. Okay, let's just imagine, you know, your brother was beating you up from the time you were 12 till you were 16. Imagine going back into that situation. Where do you feel that in your body? And they go, well, you know, my throat feels kind of tight and my chest, I feel this burning pressure in my chest. It's like, well, let's, let's focus on that a little bit. Let's breathe into that and let's just see what comes of it, you know? And then, and then I get people more comfortable with that issue because what I, what I do believe and what I did sort of come to realize under different psychedelics and other things too, is that that part of me, that alarm that's in my body is really my younger self. It was really the part that, that was sitting at the window watching them taking my dad away to the hospital. So it's, it's, it was my younger self asking for my attention. So anxiety in a way is asking for your attention. And if you had a child in front of you with their hands up, like pick me up, pick me up, and then you kind of push them away and went off and you know, went on Facebook or, or distracted somehow, that voice is just gonna get louder. And that's what happened with my patients. They would just, the, the anxiety, the alarm in their system would just get louder and louder and louder as a way of trying to get their attention. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I came up with. And, and really what I focus on is, okay, well, let's, let's understand what happened. It's really important for me to have a coherent narrative of what happened to me. And the fact that I couldn't trust my dad, even though he loved me and I knew he loved me, but he was just psychotic at points. But also in my body, being able to learn how to trust myself. And the other thing about me is I got very, very good at reading other people, which a lot of people with anxiety are very good at reading other people, but not so great about re reading themselves. So I really learn, and I teach people how to read themselves, how to basically give them the attention, give that part of you, the alarm, the attention that it needs. And then when that alarm gets the attention, it doesn't need to flare up so much anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and then the mind gets clearer. It, there's a whole bunch of benefits to it. So my big thing is I think that we're attacking anxiety in the wrong way in, I, in North America with all this talk therapy. Yeah. When you were discovering that information on the LSD or whatever it was that you were 
you know, processing, were you seeing a visual image or was it more like a knowing and information that was coming to you? Yeah, that I can't really explain, but basically, you know, when I was in the, the height of the LSD, my mind was completely fractured. It was just, everything was colors and, you know, things moving around and I couldn't really get a, a fix on anything. But when I was coming out of it, I had this sense and uh, I don't even know if it was words or it was a message that that my anxiety was kind of in my solar plexus area. You know, it's like, it, essentially it was like, what you're searching for in your mind is actually in your body. And then um, as I was coming out of it and, and it was wearing off, it was getting a little more concrete. So it really gave me this message like, you really need to focus on this area of your body because that's your younger self that's asking for your attention. And that's why your anxiety is so painful is because you've been ignoring it. You've been distracting, you know, with me, as you know, I'm a stand-up comic and a corporate speaker and, and a yoga teacher and all this stuff. So I did all this stuff to try and escape from that connection with myself. And as, as kind of woo-woo as that sounds, it really, once I decided to connect with myself, I could still be a yoga teacher and a comedian, and all that, but I could do it as a whole person, as opposed to trying to run from something and try to escape the pain. I had to really go at it. I, I, say, I, I often say you have to feel it to heal it. And, and that's what I had to do. I had to go in and feel it and, and actually make friends with it. Make friends right. with the part of, make, make friends with my anxiety, essentially. It was basically making friends with my younger self is what I was doing. Right. I love that. And so like, how do you help people understand how to become aware of that for the person that is not aware that, you know, like you said, when people will say, no, it's in my head, mm -hmm. how do you help a person to start understanding that? Well, the first thing I have to do is regulate their body because if your body is, is active, you know, you're in survival brain and when you're in survival brain, you don't learn anyway. So usually what I teach people is this little thing called, am I safe in this moment? So when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're worried about something, say, you know, am I safe in this moment? I know I've got to talk in two days and I know I've got a, a medical checkup in a week, but right now in this very moment that I'm in, am I safe? Like right here talking with you, am I safe? It's like, yeah. And for some of my patients, this is the first time they've allowed themselves to actually believe that they're safe because they've always leapfrogged to the next trauma, right? So they go through the medical test, it comes back normal. And then they would, then they would transfer all that worry onto, okay, I've got to give this presentation at work. So they would never actually give themselves this place of safety. So that's the first thing I do with people is give them this place of safety, which is just saying, are you safe in this moment? And, you know, the ego will try and tell you, no, you know, we've got this and we're in trouble. But really in this moment, are you safe? Like in the middle of the night, when you wake up in a panic, are you, can you just say to yourself, am I safe in this moment? And then realize that you are. And then something like focusing on your breath, you know, focus on some sort of sensation because sensation will bring you into the moment. Your thoughts will always project you into the future. And there's no grounding in the future because it hasn't happened yet. So we really need to sort of ground into the moment. And when you ground into the moment, you know, you've got a, you've got a place to, to move from. But if, you, if you're in your thoughts all the time and your thoughts are almost always, well, worry is always future-based, you're not stable. So when you say, am I safe in this moment? Or, and you focus on sensation, like I get people to rub their fingers together or touch their, their thumb and their fourth finger together or rub their chest or anything that pulls you in a sensation because you can only feel in the moment. Mm -hmm. that brings you into the moment and that gives you a power that you don't have when your mind's, you know, got and it's taken you off into some other realm. 
do you find that more effective for some people than the breath work? Well, that's, I, 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 I use breath work too, but I think mm -hmm. initially when you're an alarm, you're basically, I mean, we have a fear bias in our brain from a, from a neuroscience point of view, we have a fear bias in our brain. So when we get into alarm in our system, we go into that survival brain. And that survival brain makes us breathe very shallowly and it makes us look around for trouble and it makes us see things that aren't there. So what I try and do is get people into their body first, you know, am I safe in this moment is a good start and then focus on your breath and then savor your breath, savor the sensation that you're in because that brings you into the moment. And now when you focus on sensation, the hundred percent of your brain that was focused on these horrible thoughts or this worst case scenario say now only 50% of it is focused on those horrible thoughts and now 50% of it is focused on sensation. So now you feel like you've got a little bit of power in the situation. Whereas before when your thoughts just took you away, you had no power at all. So it's getting into, it's getting into that sensation which grounds you in the moment and then you can decide at that point what you're gonna do and then your brain comes out of survival mode. When your body relaxes, your brain comes out of survival mode and then you get your prefrontal cortex back and then you can start thinking rationally again. And I, the other thing I say to people is when you're anxious, there's no point in thinking. Like there really isn't any point in thinking. Even if you're trying to think positive thoughts because as soon as you think, you start opening the door to all the other negative thoughts and the negative thoughts will always come back in. You may start with, oh no, it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be good. It's, if I say to you, like, don't think of a pink elephant, of course you're gonna think of a pink elephant. You can't not do it. Right, I, I can visualize it as soon as you say that. <laughs> yeah. But if I say, you know, put your hand on your chest and rub your chest and maybe rub your hands together, you know, warm them up, put them over your eyes, get in a sensation, that pink elephant thing just starts to fade away. Mm -hmm. So thinking is one of the things like we do so much thinking, we, we worship the brain in this society, North America, and it's just making us sick because what we're, the thoughts that we're exposed to now in our society are toxic. And then we're eating more and more of these toxic thoughts. And as we eat more of these toxic thoughts, we need more of the toxic thoughts. Whereas if we just get into the feeling sense, which is, you know, part of what life is about is just feeling things begin into the feeling sense, we can start seeing a distance between, do I have to believe these things that I'm telling myself? Mm -hmm. Otherwise you just think the thoughts are you, you know, right. we, we, we get, we get focused into thinking the thought, I'm my thoughts. And, you know, and then the question I love asking people is like, Oh, who owns those thoughts? Are they yours? You know, do you own those thoughts? Can someone go in and say, I'd like to buy those thoughts from you? No, it doesn't work that way. You know, you can just see them as, you know, the late great George Carlin used to call thoughts brain droppings, which is a great, which is a great, I think that's a great thing, you know, because if you yeah. believe them, your life's going to get kind of crappy, you yeah. know, and that's what happens too. And we get these thoughts and we automatically believe our thoughts, but if we're grounded in the feeling state of our body, and I don't want to look like some sort of yoga guru, because I know we need thinking too, but it's this combination of, of allowing your mind and your body to work together as opposed to constantly putting 90% of your attention in your mind, which is gonna drag you down. And then there's nothing left over for your body and your body is where you feel life. Your body is yeah. where you feel energy. You know, your yeah. body is where you feel things. Yeah, so, it, it's so true. And you know, when we reconnected, I was really excited to hear about your work because it's similar, but different obviously uh, to what I was trained in through Dr. Colette Along, which is you know, going into the body to feel where you're storing your tension and then a energy release process to release it. I guess I've been doing that for about maybe six years or so. 
And you are the first person that is receiving the results that you're receiving through the mind and body connection. Yeah. As a medical doctor too, like it's pretty right. unheard. Usually we're It trained. is. Yeah. I, I, and I burned out of medicine because I wasn't allowing my patients to feel enough, you know, mm -hmm. I which, was which is, yeah. Huge. Yeah. yeah. And so take us through for the people that, you know, that are still really um, in the Western world having a difficult time understanding that. Can you explain a little bit more on that? What I would direct that into is if you're struggling, you know, find the alarm in your body. You know, you're not, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, you can't solve a, a feeling problem with more thinking, you know? So it's one of those things is like get into the feeling. But a lot of the problem is like when we were younger, if you had trauma when you were younger, going back into the body is not felt to be safe. But, you know, you can go back now. The place has changed. You know, you're not eight years old anymore. You're not, you know, worried that your father's going to be crazy or your mother's going to be drunk or whatever. You're not there anymore. But the amygdala, you know, makes you think because it has no sense of time that yeah. you're back there. So it's a really important to ground yourself kind of in the moment that you're in. So it's finding your alarm is basically what I get people to do is like, okay, that. go, go into what's really stressing you out. If it's, a, a, you know, you got to give a conference or a talk at a conference in two days, imagine yourself doing that. And then where do you feel that tension in your body? Like, where do you feel that? And really try and say, okay, well, it's, you know, it feels sharp. It feels like a pressure. It feels like a pain. Try and isolate it. And then just put your hand on it and just basically try and connect with it. You know, because really that's what it's asking you for. And once you connect with it, then you start opening up a whole new world of, you know, therapeutic options, as opposed mm -hmm. to just trying to fix it with your mind. Because if the problem's down here and we're up here talking about it all the time, up, up here is not where the problem is. Down here is where the problem is. So we have to deal with this part as well as the mind as well. So what I would tell people is, can you localize this sense of alarm in your body? And then can you make friends with that? It's not your enemy. Anxiety is not your enemy. You know, can you make friends with it? Can you develop a relationship with that part of you that's hurting and say, hey, you know, I feel that you're hurting. You know, what do you need from me? Like, how can we connect? You know, can I, you know, take you for ice cream or whatever? You know, like it's, it's basically just developing this new relationship with this part of you that's asking for your attention. That's really what it comes down to. So, you know, if you're dealing and struggling right now, it's find out where in your body you're feeling it because it may not be in your head at all. Mm -hmm. I love that. And has this work also brought you into helping people understand their relationships, types of relationships and how people are really yeah. um, in communication with themselves and their partner? <laughs> yeah, because your relationship with your partner could be no better than your relationship with yourself. Right. The relationship with yourself dictates the relationships you're going to have. So if you've got a part of yourself that you're pushing away all the time, you know, because it hurts, how do you think you're going to be in an interpersonal and a marriage or as a parent or whatever, like that's going to come up. And unless you can kind of join your mind and your body back together and be the best partner, parent, whatever you can be, then your relationships will get better. Or if you're having an argument, you know, with your partner, you know, one of the things that I wrote about this morning is like, sometimes when I get into a, an argument with Cynthia, uh, I have this picture of her when she's five years old. And, and I look at that picture because sometimes that's who I'm dealing with and, 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 and she's dealing the same thing with me. So our right. two, two five-year-olds are bickering away at each other 
And then all we really want to do is be seen and heard. So it's basically, you know, she'll say to me something like, you know, you don't do enough around the house, which I don't, but uh, you know, <laughs> and, and I'll say, you know, and I can say, well, I do all this other stuff and whatever. And then the fight's on. Right. But if I say, you know, I can really understand why you would think that way. I can really understand why you would think that way. Immediately it diffuses her. I feel like I come back into my, my feeling state and then she comes back into a resource feeling state as well. And then we can talk through it. But if it's like, well, I do this and I take Michael on the thing and we go to guitar and I, you know, then the fight's on. Then there's two five-year-olds just banging away at each other. So it's a matter of really developing that relationship, that compassionate relationship with yourself. Um, and even when, like, when the battle starts, like sometimes um, if she'll, like, and we don't fight that often, but, but I'm saying it's when, when it comes up, you know, sometimes I'll just put my hand on my chest and just sort of take two seconds before I respond and go, okay, connect with yourself first. And how, you, how are you going to react? And usually what I'll do once I connect with myself and I get out of my survival brain, um, I say, you know, I can really see how that would, you know, I, you know, I can really see, and I don't have to agree. And sometimes I'll say that with, I don't agree necessarily with what you're saying, but I hear what you're saying. I hear that you don't think that I do the dishes enough or the, that I, uh, that I take the garbage out enough or whatever it is. I really hear that that's what you're saying. And then once the other person is seen and heard, their body goes they go out of fight or flight and they go back into a sort of a resourced present moment state. And then you can have an honest discourse about something mm -hmm. as opposed to your two like inner children just battling away at each other. And I've been married three times. So I know exactly, you know, I know exactly how the first two went and uh, <laughs> how that didn't work out and then how much better it's going now. So that, that's really what it comes down to is knowing yourself, connecting with yourself first. And then, you know, the other thing is just seeing yourself as innocent. You know, there's nothing you've done that hasn't been done millions of times before you. There's no affair, there's no uh, addiction, there's no, that hasn't been done millions of times before you and won't be done millions of times after you. So it's learning that, you know, we're innocent. We, we develop these negative coping strategies because usually of childhood trauma, usually of wounding that our brains can't quite handle. So if you're rejecting yourself for that, you're keeping that, you're not developing a relationship with that part of yourself. And it's going to, it's going to imprison you. The more you resist something, the more it imprisons you. So making friends with the part of you that rejects you. Like if you say, oh man, I look fat today. It's like, can I find that part of me that thinks that I look fat and go, okay, why do you think I look fat? Well, it's like, where does that come from? Like have a relationship rather than just accepting it and going and then having it ruin your day. Like have talk to that part, find that part that says you didn't do this properly or find that part that rejects you or thinks that you didn't do something and, and have a conversation with it, you know, yeah. just like an equal back and forth conversation with it. Because as long as it stays hidden in the shadows and it just beaks away at you, you'll never, you'll never overcome it. You'll never get past it. But developing a relationship with it and go, yeah, I can see why you think I kind of look fat today. You know, I can see how that would happen. <laughs> You know, and then just see what comes back. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I understand. Yeah, fair enough. Because that diffuses the negative energy because the negative energy keeps you locked in that thing. So, and we tend to say the same things to ourselves over and over and over again. So develop a, a relationship with a part of you that says, you know, you know, you're looking overweight these days or, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 60 next year. So I think, oh God, you know, today I look so old. You know, I look so old now. You know, and then I look pictures of myself when I was like 20. I, was like, I look so good then, you know? So, and then it's like, well, You're can I be 60? 
Yeah, next year on my birthday. I no turned, way. Yeah, I turned fifty nine <laughs> on uh, November 29th. and then next year I'm getting myself all psyched up for it, right? I'm getting myself all. all psyched up for it. So uh, I mean, I don't feel that. I mean, I, I really don't feel it. I try and work out. I try and keep myself healthy and that kind of stuff too. And I've got good genes. Like my grandfather lived to a hundred, and my mother's already eighty six, and she's, oh my gosh, wow, uh, she's on fire, you know. So I love it. I've got good genes that way, but it is one of those things where, you know, you kind of, you know, can I, and the thing is like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go to the mirror and I'll say these things to myself and then I'll laugh. Like sometimes if you laugh, <laughs> no, really like physiologically, when you laugh, you change the chemistry of your brain and things that were bothering you before, even if you're just doing yeah. it academically, and this is where laughter yoga comes from, right? Like they go into these like laughing sessions for 15 to 20 minutes. And then the whole world looks completely different because your whole neurochemistry has all changed. Yes. You know, so even if you're thinking about something that really bothers you and then you just force yourself to laugh. And I'll tell you a little secret. Before I do any podcast, I go on uh, YouTube and I watch um, the 40-year-old virgin, the waxing scene. <laughs> I, I, and I laugh every time. Like I laugh at, at every time I laugh so hard at that. And then I'm just in this complete like focused, ready to go uh, before. But before I do any podcast, that's what I watch. I watch that uh, 40-year-old virgin. And it just, I love it's, that. It's my yeah. Favorite, you know, any movie. I, I remember years ago, I mean, probably like 12, 13 years ago, I was, uh, I, I had a coach give me, you know, a homework to <laughs> sit and laugh for 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and I already laugh a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and that was like really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is tears, like tears. Laughter and tears both activate the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So we have two wings of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic, which is fight or flight, uh, or the accelerator, and the parasympathetic, which is kind of rest and digest, which is kind of like the break, right? So as soon as you laugh, you take yourself out of this sympathetic activation, which is, you know, this negative view of yourself or whatever, and then it turns you into this sort of parasympathetic, and then you will see things that are more positive about yourself because you're in this more positive neural state and whatever state you're in that's how you're going to see the world and it's a matter of how can you change and tears are one of those things that it, it doesn't tears when you when you cry about something it doesn't change the actual event like if someone's died or right. there's a you know, relationship breakup but it does neurologically change your perception of that event so okay. and i think that's why men suffer so much um, in our society is they, they don't have that ability to, to cry and allow those tears to kind of solidify some of the problems, the internal struggles that they're going through. So they get into violence, they get into drugs, they get into alcohol, they get into porn, they get into all this stuff that tries to, again, take them away from that part of it, part of them that's really asking for the attention. And we're just, it's just trained out of us, you know, to, to not appear weak. And that is a huge, and I have it just as much as anyone else. So when I tell people that they should cry, of course, there's a bit of me that wants to have a bit of a seizure, you know, being kind of an alpha male. It's like, yeah, if I'm telling my buddies, you know, you should really cry about this, you know, and it's like, they don't really <laughs> respond to that very well, but it works, you know, it works sometimes with me, like I'll watch, um, my thing is I watch um, dog rescues, like uh, dogs that are like overseas or whatever, and they're like emaciated or whatever. If I need, if I need to, to, to break through something, if I can't get, if I'm getting frustrated with something, I'll watch these dog videos and then I'll just start, the tears will start to go. And it's amazing how much better that that allows you to sort of feel. And it makes you better at handling stuff day to day, you know, because now you've seen a pathway in your own mind 
to diff diffuse a lot of this negative energy. Now, I'm not saying go out and start crying every day, for sure. But there are points where Cynthia will say to me, I think you need to watch one of your dog videos because I think things are starting to, to back up on you. And of course, we resist and, and, and that kind of stuff too. And like, it'll take me two or three weeks to actually do it. But it does make a huge difference, you know? And I think that's why women are more psychologically healthy than men are because I think they're, they're socially a, a, a allowed to cry. And I don't think you have to do it on TV or you don't have to do it in public or whatever, but you know, just allow yourself because it's a physiological release, just as laughter is. Laughter and tears are both in the same kind of wing in that they, they activate that parasympathetic nervous system. So now I've come, now I've gone on sort of, uh, you know, the internet saying that I like to cry. That's great. <laughs> it's so helpful though. When, when you're working with uh, men versus women, do you find it harder to help men with their anxiety over women or is it pretty equally initially, difficult? <laughs> initially until, until they trust me, but it's funny because men are so, they so want to release a lot of this crap that they've been holding yeah. on to. So once yeah. they trust me, it's a lot easier. Um, women, um, it's it's sort of it. Ha I help them immediately, a lot, and then and then it kind of tapers off as their old ego structures start to come back in again. Right. But with men, it's more of a sort of a like it's almost like a switch. With women, yep. it's it, it's it's sort of this linear progress, at least initially. Uh, but men, they, they really need a, a place to release their shame. I think men, we, we feel so much shame just for being men, you know, because whenever there's a mass shooting, you know, it's never a lone gun woman, you know, it's always a lone gun man, you know, it's always, it's always a man. So we wear that as men. And I think a lot of people don't understand that as a, as a species, I mean, that's probably not the right term because we're both men and women of both the same species, but as a group, you know, we hold the shame of all the people that have, you know, the rapes and the, and the, and the, um, you know, the horrible things that men do and the Trumps and all this stuff, you know, like we, we, we right. wear that, like right. we wear that stuff. And, um, and especially if you're a white male doctor, like you don't get any more privilege than me. Like <laughs> this, this is it. Like this, this other than, you know, Brad Pitt or movie stars or whatever, you don't go through life with a whole lot more privilege than a white male, although, you know, I've had some anxiety in my life that has taken me to the edge of, you know, not wanting to live anymore. So it's not like I don't deal with stress either, but I really see the struggles that people of color and of sexual orientation, I really see what they go through because it's, it's and I, because I'm empathic and because I was a doctor for so many years. And the reason why I think I retired, one of the reasons was that I did feel their pain. Like I did, and it was just too much to see, you know, 25 people, 30 people every day and actually feel their pain. And I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. So now I do this and I like doing this so much more than, you know, being one-on-one -on -one and prescribing medications and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So have you found like people who are empathic, is their anxiety typically higher? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, because yeah, I think what happens to a lot of us too is like we're, we we start off as sensitive people. Like I started off as really sensitive, right? So what happens is that if you're more sensitive, you're more you're more prone to anxiety. That's just how it works. And uh, I think that what happens is that when you're when you are that sensitive, you do read and feel other people, and you read and feel their pain. And 
it just, it cycles on itself. And unless you have a way of kind of clearing that energy, it just builds up into this slush fund over the course of time. And, you know, one of my superpowers is being able to, to read people extremely well, but I'm not that great at reading myself, you know, what I need. Because when I was younger, it was really important for me to see the nuances of my dad. Like, was he starting to lose, you know, was he starting to lose his mind? Is he, because he would go in phases where he'd be fine. And then he would lose his mind. So I was always watching him and reading him as to whether or not he was going to lose his mind. So what I did was I got very, very good at reading external to me. And then all that energy went out as opposed to being able to read myself. So I lost the ability to kind of read my own feelings and read my, and so that's why the anxiety came up. That's why it got so loud, which is basically saying, pick me up. Like uh, I need some attention here. And then I said, no, I need to work. You know, I'm going to go be a doctor and, and help other people and not help myself. And then my anxiety just got worse and worse and worse. So, and the people out there that are having anxiety that's worse and worse and worse, it's like, you're doing something that is making you worse. Now, what is it? And what are you, and it leads me to this story. Like this is one of my favorite stories. I don't even know if it's true, but it's a story about how they catch monkeys and apparently what they do is they put some bananas behind this kind of chicken wire fence so a monkey can go up he can go in he can put his hand through the fence he can grab the banana but he can't get his hand back out because the the hole was only big enough for his hand it's not big enough for his hand and his banana so basically what they do is they walk up to him and they just grab him because he will not release that banana you know so i ask people like what's the banana in your life is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it whatever? What's the banana that you're holding onto that's keeping you trapped in that particular place? And it's keeping you caught so that you're, you know, you're suffering, you're struggling. And it's really hard for people to release these things because a lot of those things, like being a medical doctor for me, was a way of, of feeling important. It was a, a way of, of, of lowering my stress. Right, or yeah. yeah. So if, if I'm not a doctor anymore, who am I? And I went through a real period there when I, when I left practice of like, okay, who the hell am I? Right. So, but I, you know, I knew I had to do it and I'm glad that I did it now, but you know, I asked people like, what's the banana? What are you holding yeah, on to? Yeah, which, which is interesting for you because you do have the uh, stand up and so many other interests, like, I you know, you're on the road, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really powerful to hear you say that because um, you had multiple roles in a set. Career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't stick with anything. That's why I've been married three times, right? (laughs) But but on some level, that's true. And then, you know, you mellow out as you get older and that kind of thing. And you sort of see, you know, what is important. But what really is important, what we were talking about earlier, is developing that relationship with yourself. And so many women are are so, you're so conditioned by society to give and give and give and give and give, Mm -hmm. you know, that you, like, similar to me with my father, is like you lose that ability to read your own needs because- Part of your identity, same with my identity as being a physician, is wrapped up in giving. Yeah, caretaking, right? yep. And then around 46 and a half, the freaking springs come off and you, you go to Bali for a month because you can't stand it anymore. You know, and just like, ah, get out of here. I got to break, I got to break away. And, you know, it's, it's really developing that relationship with yourself. And then yeah. I think that's really what it comes down to without sounding too Gandhi-esque. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down yeah. to developing I, relationship with yourself and, yeah. and, and the darkest parts of yourself too, making friends with your Accepting. shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Making friends with your shame is the, one of the biggest things. Like I deal with a lot of men and a lot of shame and, and I have yet to meet uh, a man who has a shameful story that I haven't heard before. I've heard them all. There's no oh. new shames. 
there's only recycled ones like it's and it's i'm sure it's the same with women too but it, you know there's no new shames you're yeah not, we're all so identical it's yeah. it's amazing it's yeah. very beautiful because yeah. at the end of the day we're all the same yeah, you're not special. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah. I had a woman in uh, uh, probably about six months ago. She you know, a repeated affairs on her husband. Husband's a great guy and that kind of stuff. And the shame that she carried from that, you know. Um, but as a child, you know, she never felt important. You know, she was so she was always seeking validation from outside of herself. And then it, as soon as she saw that part that needed validation from outside of herself, and it took a little while. It wasn't like it was instant, but there was an instant sort of revelation there. Like, can you make friends with a part of you that feels you need affairs? You know, and can you accept that part? And just, and then not only accept it, can you love that part? You know, can you really love that part? Because that's what it needs, you know, and then you that's can where kind the of- true feeling Yeah. So there's so, so much, you know, on some levels we're so complicated and other levels we're just so simple. You know, we just want to be seen and heard. That's really- all all of us really want because you know when we're seen and heard we feel loved and that's really what it comes down to we feel connected thank you so much thank you for sharing your wisdom and your heart and and i'm really excited to to read your upcoming book it's gonna be out next year is that right april of 2020 yeah it's april gonna be called the anxiety rx or the anxiety prescription okay. and is is your course available now it is, yeah. Okay. Any method online, it's it's pretty, you know, it's pretty intense. So, like, that's one thing. If you're not if you're not ready to to let your anxiety go, and I say that in the, in the course too, is like, you know, it, it is one of those things that uh, anxiety is one of those things that they it developed as a coping strategy for you. So, you know, constant worry and constant vigilance developed as a coping strategy. So, what I'm doing in the course is I'm taking away that coping strategy. Um, which creates more anxiety. So you really have to do it. What you have to do is replace that, that thinking process with a feeling process that you're okay. And the course is really, it's really life-changing for a lot of people. But you know, what I've heard back is it, it can charge you up, you know? So if you're not really ready to abandon this coping strategy called anxiety, you know, then take it easy, develop some time, develop a connection with yourself first, you know, and I'm on YouTube. All you have to do is like Google the anxiety MD and my YouTube and my Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Thanks for joining us on beauty and the mess. Feel free to visit Robin on Instagram at Robin under